reunion. What comes to mind when you hear the word reunion? You think of a family reunion, perhaps, or a class reunion, maybe a reunion of your favorite band. Reunions are usually good things, aren't they? They often bring warm memories, but they're not always smooth. In fact, sometimes you're left avoiding someone. You've been there before, right? Your crazy uncle comes walking down and you've all of a sudden got an urgent phone call you have to go take. You found yourself in that spot likely. But reconciliation is different than reunion. Reunion, you might say, is getting back into the same place, but reconciliation follows broken relationships and it brings healing and wholeness. Reconciliation is far more personal, it's far more intimate, and it involves a much deeper level of coming together. Reunion is kind of being in the same place after a long time apart, but reconciliation involves a whole lot more. It's learning to love each other after some really deep wounds. Today in Genesis 42, what we find is a a story of Joseph and his brothers with an unplanned reunion that leads to true reconciliation. So if, if you're new to the story or you're unfamiliar with the Bible, we're finding Joseph in the land of Egypt. He's removed from his family both geographically, but also relationally. Those relationships have fractured and they've been separated and broken. And so his family in their own land encounters a severe famine and uh, they're facing death. They can't find anything to eat. And so they hear that there's food in Egypt where Joseph is, but they actually don't know that he's there. It's an interesting twist to the story. So, so they go to Egypt to find the food. They find Joseph who is there and he sees them and recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so what this chapter begins to do is teach us foundational truths about reconciliation. It's a story with many layers, and you don't see the full reconciliation completed in this chapter, but there's foundational elements for reconciliation being laid out here. And of course, the dominant reconciliation is Joseph with his brothers. But there's others as well. There's the dad with the brothers because he's angry at them for, for basically being lazy bums. And then there's the brothers with the brothers who are being reconciled after, you know, they're upset at each other for who had sold Joseph many years ago and the guilt that they're feeling for those things. But the whole chapter ends up laying a foundation for reconciliation. In a sense saying, reunions are good, but reconciliation is better. In a way, you almost hear echoes of the Garden of Eden here, right? Not merely saying, how can we be reunited with God? Not merely can we have a reunion with God, but how can we be reconciled to God? And then what immediately follows Genesis 3, Genesis 4, where God is no longer saying to his people, where are you, but where is your brother? How can you not merely have a reunion with your brother, but actually a true reconciliation to your brother and Cain and Abel in that spot? So maybe it's helpful to start out with a brief definition, the simplest of definitions of what is reconciliation. You can certainly find complex ones in dictionaries and theological works. I like to keep it simple. So we're just going to say reconciliation is this, to remove hostility and to restore harmony. To remove hostility and to restore harmony. So kind of a a two-part trait there. It, It requires two parties that are actively participating Maybe you think of it a bit like a hug. 
You can try to hug someone who isn't hugging you back, but you can't actually say, we're hugging. <laughs> right? There's all kinds of ways. Or, or, or a handshake. You can try to shake somebody's hand, and if they're not going to shake it back, it, it requires two parties where there is removing hostility and restoring harmony. And reconciliation is really a dominant theme throughout all of the Bible. Maybe one passage that helps to illustrate it clearly, we'll put on the screen here, is in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Here's what it says. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, you start, there's reconciliation needed because there's hostility, doing evil deeds, he being God has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see those two things? Remove hostility, restore harmony, present you holy, blameless before him. That's the idea there. Now, if you want to look up a couple of other passages, Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, we'll zoom in on this. Ephesians chapter 2, like verses 14 through 17 or so, we'll zoom in on this. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, again, zooms in. One of the ones I think is really significant for us to notice is Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Just jot that down. It highlights the urgency of reconciliation in, in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. What Jesus actually says is, if you're bringing an offering to the Lord and you've not yet been reconciled to your brother, leave your offering at the door. That's not as important as being reconciled. Go seek reconciliation. Once that's been taken care of, then you can come back and bring your offering. So this is a dominant theme of the whole Bible, and, and what we find in Genesis 42 is more the narrative form, the story form, speaking to reconciliation and how all of this works. So what I want to do this morning is take a little bit more creative outline than what we usually do. Right? I tend to be kind of straightforward, it's going to be this, 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 uh, and, and use some images. We're going to say that reconciliation is like surgery, it's like spaghetti, it's like stock investments, and it's like space travel. So it's, it's, it's a winding road. I get that. A lot, a lot of images there. But we're going to say that reconciliation is like surgery, spaghetti, stock investments, and space travel. And, uh, and the first two tend to be a little bit more uh, preparatory in, in nature, dealing with your mindset and how you're leading into reconciliation. And then the second two are a little more action-oriented, and they deal more with kind of executing our game plan through it. So that's, that's the approach we'll take and uh, hopefully have a little bit of fun along the way. All right, so the first point, reconciliation is like surgery. What we mean by that, it's painful but necessary. Now, as soon as you start to talk of surgery, it implies that something is broken, Maybe you do an x-ray to confirm that you've got a broken arm before you enter into surgery. But if you're going to surgery, you know there, there's definitely a need here. And certainly for us in our day, modern anesthesia helps surgery to not be so painful. But however you slice it, <laughs> surgery is always painful as you're being cut open for one need or another. Now, if, if you're not familiar with Joseph and his story exactly, his family is the perfect picture of a dysfunctional family. The need for surgery in his family is obvious. His dad is a pathological liar who plays favorites with his sons and with his wives. His brothers are governed by hatred in ways that are really hard to wrap your mind around. They take their own brother and sell him into slavery. 
These guys are, are just cold-blooded. They ignore his pleas for mercy, and then they lie to their dad about what happened to him. See, they don't exactly need this x-ray to confirm their broken arm or their broken leg. They've got a bone sticking out of the flesh with blood gushing everywhere. But just as if it wasn't clear enough, the author in Genesis 42 gives us a little bit of clues to help even make this more obvious. Look back at verse 11. Look what these brothers say. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Really, guys? You're telling us how virtuous you are and how you're good guys? And if you would this afternoon take a little bit of time to compare the, the story of what happens when they encounter Joseph and when they get home to retell the story to their dad, they have some convenient airbrushing to make the thing look a lot better for themselves than what it actually was. Right? It's, it's kind of subtle there. And then you look down at verse 21 of chapter 42. Here's what we read. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. That they recognize there is a need for reconciliation. There's a need for surgery. We're very broken. Truth be told, sometimes this is actually where we find ourselves in life. Extreme brokenness, major relational hostility right in front of us saying, how am I going to figure this out? That might be you right now. Maybe you can look back on your life and you remember a time where like, wow, it was so intense right then. I didn't know how we were ever going to get through that. But I also think in times where we're not quite in the deep end of it, we're tempted to think that, you know, things aren't maybe that bad. Yes, nobody's perfect. We all have our issues, but we don't need an intervention right now. Sometimes it's just that our, our sin and our brokenness from it is a little less obvious. But even if it's less obvious to us, it's no less real. And we still have to deal with the sin that infects all of our hearts, that's causing us to have relational difficulties. Je Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us a little bit about our own heart condition. It says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're forced to grapple with, that is my heart, that's your heart, that's all of our hearts. What that means then is that blindness to our own sin isn't just an issue for Joseph's brothers saying, we're honest men, we promise. That's all of us. So what happens is we, we fail to let the Bible x-ray us, we fail to see our own broken bones, and we convince ourselves that we're doing all right. In other words, we sometimes will see our own sin as a bit like a stomach bug where we just need some Tums or some Pepto or maybe we can kind of power through and try and sleep through the night. We think it's not that big of a deal. What the Bible's telling us is no, a better comparison would be intestinal cancer. You have to take action. And we all have this disease. Now, maybe you're not totally convinced. Like, Justin, is my heart actually that diseased, that bad? And I would just remind you of a couple of passages. James chapter 3, verse 8. Let me, let me read this to you. It says this, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's in all of us. 
Or Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's all of our hearts. And so just like intestinal cancer, early detection is key for us. But rather than an annual colonoscopy, what exactly is the prescription for us? What do we do about it? And it's to make a regular habit of confession to God and to others. A regular habit. Don't wait for stage four brokenness where you need major reconciliation help, but make a habit of saying, I'm sorry. Here's what I did. I named my sin. Don't make excuses for it or qualify it. Will you forgive me? Confession to God, confession to others. I recognize that reconciliation is like surgery. It's painful but necessary because we all have a diseased heart. Maybe it's more clear in Joseph's brothers than it is to you right now, but we know it's true of all of us. That brings us to our, our second image. Reconciliation is like spaghetti. How is reconciliation like spaghetti? Well, it's both complicated and messy. If you know anything about eating spaghetti, the first rule, don't eat it while wearing a what color shirt? A white shirt. Don't do it. It doesn't matter how careful you are. doesn't matter what kind of silverware you got. doesn't matter if you used a different kind of sauce. doesn't matter if you got a bigger napkin. It doesn't matter if you put a trash bag over your kid's, you know, outfit. There's going to be red sauce on the shirt. It's very messy. What Genesis 42 does, I think it's very interesting, is it doesn't just tell us the events of the story. The author takes great pain to tell us a bit about the emotional life of the characters, to see the messiness in their lives and in their soul, where seeking this reconciliation is incredibly difficult, it's complicated, and it's messy. Let me show you just a couple of these. Starting in 42, verse 1. Listen to the kind of the messiness in Jacob's heart. He says this, When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And it's like kids these days. There's snowflakes everywhere. Like, get up and get a job. Why are you guys looking at each other? We're going to die here. There's grain. Go do something about it. He's already really frustrated. If you're a parent, you kind of can resonate with that deeply. Of like, this seems so obvious. Like, we're going to die. Why don't you go do something about it? Jacob's frustrated. Drop down to verse 4. We see another aspect of Jacob's frustration here. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him, might happen to him. What's Jacob feeling in addition to his anger and frustration? Deep fear. I don't know what's going to happen here. This is scary. Emotional life of these characters is kind of coming into full view. Look down at verse 22. We pick up another layer of this with the brothers. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. The blame game returns. I told you guys this was a bad idea. Whether it's his own guilty conscience he's been dealing with or anger he's been feeling towards his brothers, you're seeing a complicated mess in the life of their family, saying, boy, this is messier than spaghetti even. We're all getting red sauce on our shirts. Verse 24, chapter 42 
They're with Joseph, and here's simply what we read. Then he, being Joseph, turned away from them, and he wept. So with each member of the family, we're seeing this complicated web of relationships that emotionally is just very difficult. Dad is angry. He's afraid. The brothers are overcome with guilt. Reuben's playing the game, blame game, and Joseph is weeping bitterly over it. If you take time and just read through these slowly, the emotional weight of the chapter will just knock the wind out of you. I think sometimes we're tempted to say when it comes to reconciliation, Justin, just tell me what to do. What's the action step here? But the author is telling us you also have to grapple with what's happening inside of you. This is complicated for you to work through. It's going to be messy. It's going to require intense prayer, asking the Lord to prepare your heart to step into this. It's not going to be easy. You have to count the cost. And as we often know with spaghetti, it's not just messy, it's also complicated because you stick your fork into that big cluster, clump, whatever it is of the noodles, and you start to twist it, and you think you've got it all, and next thing you know, there's more noodles coming up. And this other noodle is sort of sticking to the other noodle coming up. And reconciliation's a little bit like that too. Because as soon as you enter into reconciliation, you think you know the issues, you think you know what needs to be dealt with, and other stuff starts to come up, doesn't it? Sometimes it's stuff in your life. You're like, oh, I didn't even know about that. Or it's other stuff in somebody else's life. You're like, oh, you lied to me about that too. Running right? gets really, really complicated. You thought you could just kind of cut it up like a, like a steak and take a little bite, and it's not that simple. So remember, we're talking in preparation for reconciliation. You have to see this is both complicated and messy. And if the complexity and the mess scares you away, it's, first off, that's a reasonable fear. Like, boy, this is going to be difficult. Maybe we should just stay away and not deal with it. Maybe we could just kind of pick up the corner of the rug, sweep it underneath, drop it down, and not have to go there. Everybody's felt that temptation. What did Jesus do with us, though? Did he let the complexity and the mess of our lives scare him away? Or did he come to earth, leave the pleasures of heaven, and enter into our mess so that we could be redeemed? This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus became flesh. And so for us to be like Jesus means that we too will embrace incarnational ministry. Simply means that we'll step into the mess of others because Jesus stepped into the mess of us. He didn't stay at a distance. What that means then is a failure to embrace the mess of others is a failure to embrace the gospel of grace. And a failure to embrace the mess in your own life is similarly a failure to embrace the gospel of grace. So friends, don't be here on Sunday morning and sing the glorious truths of this gospel, that the nations should be glad and we should come behold the wondrous mystery and we have this living hope and then walk out and not live in light of that gospel with a willingness to embrace the mess of daily life because there's a real gospel from a real God who really became man so that you could really be redeemed and really be transformed. Reconciliation is like spaghetti. It's complex and it's messy, but there's real hope. That brings us to our, our third image. Reconciliation is like stock investments. It's like stock investments. It's wise, but it is risky. 
Well, what do we know about stock investments? Let's start there. We know it's wise to invest, but we know that you can get sideways with bad investments, and it can be really risky. So you have to appropriately gauge the risk. Maybe you employ some kind of a financial advisor to help you think through this. But you know, or at least I hope you know, that sitting on your hands isn't a good option. Right, imagine 35 years ago, you've got a robust retirement of $25,000, and you say, you know what, the risk is too much, let's go to the bank, let's get cold hard cash in 20s, put it under the mattress, and we're going to be set. Maybe felt good 35 years ago, 25K today is not going to help you a whole lot. Right, you recognize, boy, I should have taken a wiser step where I actually did something with it, rather than just sitting on it. At that point, maybe you would have said failing to invest, failing to take action. It felt prudent, but it was actually foolish. And with reconciliation, it's a little bit similar. There's all kinds of reasons that we can tell ourselves that failing to take action is the wiser path. But we must take action, even though it's risky. We have to step into it. Now, for Joseph, let's just consider where he's at. His brothers come. He's in a bit of a precarious position. He rightly desires reconciliation with them. That's a good thing for him to desire. But what is the wisest path for Joseph? There's risk involved because he's the second in command in the most powerful nation in the world of Egypt. And so if his brothers see his offer of forgiveness and reconciliation and fail to reciprocate, they sort of give him the Heisman and tell him to be you know, they use some bad words and say, we're not going to have a part of this with you. The likely penalty in the Egyptian court for them would be the death penalty. So you can see how Joseph would be motivated to not pursue this reconciliation right now and say, we should just wait for another time. Because if they respond poorly, it likely could cost them their life. Stakes are pretty high for Joseph. If you've had to think about that, you can understand like, yeah, these stakes are high because Maybe the situation in our family will blow up and it'll get a lot worse. Some have looked at Joseph's comments to his brothers and wondered, was he being vindictive? Is he overly harsh to his brothers? Some ask about that. He imprisons a guy. He speaks very harshly to them. He doesn't reveal his identity. What's going on there? I don't think Joseph was being vindictive at all. In fact, I think he was choosing a very wise path. Uh, I want to show you a couple of verses that inform that and and why we see that in the text. Look at verse 8 with me. Here's what we read. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams, that will be important, that he had dreamed of them. What did he dream of them? That they would bow down to him and that his father would bow down to them. We'll come back to that. Look down at verse 18. Here's what we read. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Now, Joseph uses there a general name for God, Elohim, instead of the specific name of the God of Israel. He knows that to reveal that he's following the God of Israel might out himself. So he says, look, I'm doing the upright, the righteous thing. I follow God but he doesn't quite out himself yet. And what he does is he he enters into a series of tests with his brothers. He's trying to see, have they really changed? Because I can't fully reveal all of this until I know if they've changed. If we do this too soon, it could go very badly for them. He's seeking the wisest path through a risky situation. 
He's also trying to figure out, what's a wise path to get my father here? Because one, the dreams that I think are from God said dad would bow down to me, but also we've got five more years of famine. And so just giving them grain to take home might work in the short term, but it's not a very good long-term plan to save my family. See, Joseph's got all kinds of layers here trying to figure out what's the wisest way through this risky situation. And so he takes the initiative and puts a plan into action where he basically has two primary goals. His first goal is this. He wants to help his brothers see their guilt. Doesn't quite know, you know, has this been known to them? Has it not been known to them? How can I help them see their guilt? In, in other words, he's saying, I know I can't force someone into a confession. Like You could do waterboarding of sorts, I guess, and some kind of torture methods, but that's not really a confession. That's just saying whatever you have to say to save your skin. So Joseph says, how can I help them to see their guilt? So he imprisons all of the brothers and then drops it back to one of them. In a sense, he's walking them through the path of what they did to him. He's helping them to experientially feel what he felt and recognize this is terrible. How could we do this to someone? And we actually saw that they come to that realization. Now, I want to point out here for just, just a moment, if you've been in an abusive relationship or you are in one, this doesn't mean you need to go back to that abuser. That's not what this kind of section means. Don't, don't hear it that way. You need to seek some counsel, some help from a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, community group leader. How can I lead this person to see their guilt? It doesn't mean you have to go back into that relationship. Be very clear on that. But the second thing that Joseph does is he doesn't merely say, how can I help them to see their guilt? He says, how can I look out for their good? What does that look like for me to look out for their good? So he loads up their backpacks with this extra money, extra provisions for the journey. He says, I'm going to make sure I take care of them. In other words, he's saying, how can I show audacious amounts of grace without being an enabler? Isn't that part of the challenge of reconciliation? How can I be filled with grace, an abundance of grace, without being an enabler at the exact same time? Very difficult. requires great wisdom. But we have to remember what Romans 2.4 tells us, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not his heavy-handedness. It's not him beating us with a stick. It's not him layering heavy burdens of the law saying, be a better person, be a better person, be a better person. It's his grace, his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so Joseph is saying, how can I lead them to see their own guilt while looking out for their own good and showing them as much grace as possible? And practically speaking, I understand that's really difficult to say, in my situation with the complexities I'm in, how do I do that? How do I figure out what that looks like, Justin? I would simply say, it is best determined in community. A close set of friends, one or two, a trusted advisor, a pastor, a counselor, somebody that you can talk to and think through, how can I proceed wisely in a risky situation? It's like a stock investment. But one of the wisest things you can do on reconciliation that it applies to all of us is to seek it regularly and frequently. Don't wait for the big blow up. Make a regular habit of going to one another and seeking forgiveness. It's a bit like a retirement account, actually, isn't it? What do they say you're supposed to do? Start early, make small investments along the way. If you try and wait till later when you've got higher earning potential and the kids are not in diapers as much anymore, hopefully not at all anymore, and um, you know, then you make a bigger investment. Like That's not how that works. 
Well, it's the exact same thing with reconciliation. We make a regular habit of small investments going, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, here's what I did, not making excuses, will you forgive me? It's a very similar principle. And yes, there's going to be sometimes where it wells up and it's huge and it's really hard to navigate. Like that's part of living in a broken and a fallen world. But part of wisely navigating these is having the humility to go to people and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We recognize that any action here is hard, but inaction is actually worse. So wisely seek reconciliation before it's too late. That's the, the third image. Reconciliation is like stock investments. And that brings us to the fourth and to the final one. Reconciliation is like space travel. I know it's been a winding road from surgery to spaghetti to stock investments to space travel. What do we mean by this reconciliation is like space travel? It is both possible and attainable. Maybe as we've been talking, you think, Justin, this just feels so difficult. It's painful but necessary. It's complicated and it's messy. It's the risk everywhere. Can we actually get there? Yes. Yes, you can in the power of the gospel. Talking space travel, for the vast majority of human history, space travel has been simply impossible. Like not, not even a conversation, right? Maybe the last 50 years or so it's been reserved for the professionals. But maybe you know it's actually becoming a civilian affair. In 2021, there was a four-person, all-civilian flight that orbited the Earth. Like it's becoming possible for normal people. Although if you're, if you're like me, it still feels a little bit reserved for others, like those who have just immense amounts of wealth or desire for such a crazy thing in the first place. Like that doesn't quite feel all the way normal yet. But, but I wonder if sometimes we see reconciliation a bit like space travel today in that this sense we would say it's technically possible, but it's something that happens to other people, not to me. Like, yeah, I know you can read books about it and hear, like, people have, like, reconciled in big things. But in my life, that feels altogether impossible, unattainable, not something that can happen. Sometimes we feel that way. We know it's laughable to attempt space travel without immense wealth or the right equipment. But maybe that's actually supposed to teach us something. That to successfully undergo space travel, you need a lot of power beyond yourself. Whether it be wealth, or the right equipment, or the right training. And when it comes to reconciliation, you also need immense power beyond yourself. You just can't muster it up from within. To attempt reconciliation without the power of the gospel, actively transforming your heart, is just as crazy to attempt space travel without the right rocket launcher. It's just not going to happen. So whether it's confessing sin to someone else or receiving forgiveness from, or giving forgiveness to someone else, whatever side of that coin you're on, you have to recognize the radical power of the gospel in your own life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, maybe is a good verse for you just to commit to memory or ongoing meditation. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this, this cosmic reconciliation where God has reconciled us to himself is at the heart of any earthly reconciliation. You may be here and you're not yet a Christian, and you've not had that reconciliation to God. 
Your wife still feels like that broken bone that's never been made whole again. Friends, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and lived the perfect life that we didn't live and died the death we deserved so that you could be reconciled to God, so you could be forgiven of your sins, so you could have a secure eternity with God in heaven. This morning, the most important thing you could do is ask him to forgive you of your sins and to give you that relationship with him. And once you've made that decision, then you live out of that decision. You have a life that flows out of it. See, the gospel that saves you is also what changes you. This great act of reconciliation planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit, that's what actually carries you into the possibility of reconciliation. That I recognize how much I've been forgiven, how wrong I was, and I can admit that I'm wrong. And I see how much God forgave me, and I can forgive someone else. But as my vision gets fuzzy on that ultimate reconciliation, then my feet become lazy in pursuing earthly reconciliation. There's all kinds of ways we could talk about it, but maybe I'll just close this morning with a, a story from a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. Perhaps you've, you've heard of Corrie. She lived during World War II. She was a Dutch watchmaker. As the Nazis expanded their conquest throughout Europe, she helped many Jews escape from Nazi Germany. She ended up being caught by the Gestapo. She was sent to the concentration camp Ravensbrück. Nearly 150,000 prisoners there, mostly women. Her sister, Betsy, died in that concentration camp. And after the war, Corey would go around speaking on reconciliation and forgiveness. And at one of these times when she was speaking on forgiveness, she met one of the guards from Ravensbrück. And drawing on the power of the gospel in her own life, she would actually be able to forgive him. I could tell you about it, but I'd rather read to you in her own words how she described this. Two pages, front and back, it'll take me a moment. But listen to what she says, what gripped her heart, and how coming back to the power of the gospel was the only hope of seeing true reconciliation. Here, here's what Corey writes. It was at a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland into defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that's where forgiven, forgiven sins were thrown. I said, when we confess our sins, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. 
working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It all came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, ma'am. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. He was saying, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. I thought, no, he, he did not remember me. But he went on. Since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Ma'am, his hand went out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not forgive him. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. Jesus says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for the, for the victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness, I knew that they remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. 
The current started in my shoulder, and it raced down my arm, and it sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bring tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I wish I could say that I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I do wish I could say that. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed through me, but they didn't. And if there's one thing I've learned now at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and good behavior, but I can only draw them fresh from God each day. Friends, we must draw on the glorious truths of the gospel every single day. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And because of his gift, reconciliation really is possible. Joseph's life tells us about it. Corey Ten Boom's story testifies to it. And the blood of Jesus secures it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you would love us so much that you would send your son to this earth to die for our sins to reconcile us to you, knowing it would be painful, knowing it would be costly, knowing it would be messy and risky, and yet in your love, you would choose to show such great mercy that we could not comprehend. That you would show us a love that would remember no wrongs. Despite being on and all-knowing, you would count not the sum of our wrongs. You would throw them into a sea without bottom or shore so that we might sing, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Oh, Lord, may we not lose sight of your unbelievable sacrifice that takes all the difficulty and the complexities of reconciliation and makes it actually possible. May we daily, hourly, minute by minute, draw on the strength that you provide through your death on the cross to live lives that are honoring and glorifying to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.